Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you. There, there is a... Uh, one of the things that I want to talk about in this hour, I just want to throw it into the mix, and then I want to get back to holding Trump accountable as well. And you've heard this before on this program. I rolled it out of the newsletter over at HartmanReport.com. The title is Guns. There's a free market solution every Republican should love. Cars taught us how to deal with things that kill people. And, you know, it's very straightforward stuff. Back in the early 1900s, like, you know, 1900, 1910, 1920, back during that period, and really even the last decade of the 1800s, of 1890s, cars became so common they were replacing horses in cities all over America. And we had three problems. People were killing each other with their cars because they didn't know how to drive. If a car got stolen, there was no way to track it down, or if an abandoned car was found, there was no way to find its original owner. And when breadwinners, when the people who were the principal support for a family were killed or injured in a car accident to the point where they couldn't work any longer, disabled, then that family got wiped out through no fault of their own if they were the victim of an accident. So over a couple of decades, from the 1910s uh, through the 1940s and 50s, we came up with this three-part solution of register every car, and I'm saying we should do this with every gun, uh, have every driver prove to an agent of the state, to the DMV, that they know how to drive and they know the rules of the road. We should do the same thing with guns. People and, and the DMVs can simply expand their facilities, put a shooting range out on the side and get some good instructors in. You know, you, the army's full of them. And, you know, determine if somebody actually knows how to use a weapon. Do they know safety protocols? Do they have a, you know, a gun safe at home? Or at least do they understand these principles to get a shooter's license, number two. And then number three, that everybody have liability insurance, that this is a free market solution that conservatives should love. And we, we learn now, and I've, I've been working on this book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, and it's amazing. Did you know that insurance companies are buying GPS location data on your cell phone to find out not only how much you travel, and thus, you know, if you're accurately reporting your mileage to them, because this has something to do with how much they charge you for insurance. But in addition to that, 
how quickly you leave a stoplight, right? How, how fast you drive on the freeway. They, that information is literally available from data brokers on the internet and it's being purchased by insurance companies. And they're purchasing it also directly from cell phone companies, among others. People who sell you apps that have, you know, traffic apps and things, they're capturing that information on you and selling it to your insurance company. So the insurance company, you know, and we can say, well, this is pretty damn invasive. I'm not sure I'm happy about that. But the bottom line is that the insurance companies would do a hell of a deeper background check than the FBI. The insurance companies, if they had to insure you as a gun owner, they're going to look at, you know, is this person on drugs? I mean, legal drugs, pharmaceuticals, what's their medical history? Yes, that information, you think HIPAA protects it, but there's a lot of that information that's being purchased by insurance companies right now. Is this person drinking a lot? What are their alcohol purchase habits? And yes, they can, you know, they can get that data from your credit card companies. Most of us don't pay cash for the booze we buy, whether it's in the bar or whether it's in the liquor store or whether it's at the supermarket. And yes, that information is available for sale. Has this person ever been involved in a fight? Uh, you know, who, you know what, what does their Facebook profile look like? Are, are they showing lots of pictures of themselves in bars? You know, stuff like this. I mean, you know, it's like this is... So, you know, they would, they would be looking for flags for guns too. So I just, you know, I've, I've said this before. I'll just toss it out one last time. I really think that, you know, it's, it's very unlikely as long as uh, Citizens United stands that, and you know, bribery of politicians is legal and the NRA is still in the bribing politicians business. And there are other smaller groups that are doing it as well on behalf of promoting guns. That you're not gonna have an Australia style, you know, lockdown, clamp down on guns. But I think that this is a, a reasonable step. Now, to the lawyer who called, uh, Michael, thank you very much for the call. I, I really appreciate hearing from conservatives, uh, Republicans, whatever, people who disagree with me. Uh, it helps me fine-tune my arguments. And, and uh, you know, and I, I, and I think this is one of the reasons why I want the Republican Party back as the Eisenhower Republican Party, a rational Republican Party. And that is because I, I really think that we should have a two-party system. We shouldn't have had one-party rule by the GOP like we had, you know, in, in part of the Trump administration. Uh, and we shouldn't have one-party rule by Democrats. We need, you know, both. So thank you for that call. But, but to that point, you know, he, he made the point that, you know, how can you, how can you assert? How can I assert the, the Trump and the, and the, and the right-wing world, basically, flipped after April 7th. And, and this is from a piece that I published, um, oh, what was the date? This was back on January 10th. And it's titled, Coronavirus Meltdown, Why April 7th Must Go Down in Infamy. I told you, Google my name in April 7th. I'm going to republish this at some point um, but because, you know, these links need to be out there. There's links to all of everything I'm saying here. Um, Jared Kushner had put together an all-volunteer task force the, the, you know, Donald Trump had shut the government down. Now, this was on March 7th. We were up to 22 dead people in the United States. And on March 11th, Donald Trump made an official declaration of emergency. Shut the company down. The Dow collapsed. Millions of Americans were laid off. Uh, Jared Kushner was doing this thing. The U.S. Postal Service was preparing to send out masks. And then about two and a half weeks later, 
or about three and a half weeks later, April 7th, the New York Times ran the front page story with the headline, quote, black Americans face alarming rates of coronavirus infection in some states, end of quote. And all of a sudden, the entire American conservative world said, what? Rush Limbaugh declared that afternoon, and I quote, with the coronavirus, I have been waiting for the racial component. The coronavirus now hits African-Americans harder, harder than illegal aliens, harder than women. It hits African-Americans harder than anybody. Disproportionate representation. And then he went on to say, you know, but now these, here's Fox Acatus and Cory Booker and Kamala Harris demanding the federal government release daily race and ethnicity data on coronavirus testing patients and the health outcomes. So they want a database to prove we're not caring enough about African-Americans. That was Limbaugh's response. Tucker Carlson uh, went on Fox News and he said, we can begin to consider how to improve the lives of the rest. The countless Americans who've been grievously hurt by this, by our response to this. But how do we get 17 million of our most vulnerable citizens back to work? That's our task. Brit Hume, the news guy over at Fox News, joined Tucker's show and said, and I quote, well, the disease turned out not to be quite as dangerous as we thought. In other words, it's not killing as many white people. There were only 12,600 Americans dead on that day, April 7th. It took less than a week for Trump to get the memo. On April 12th, he retweeted a call to fire Dr. Fauci. In another tweet, he said that he had the sole authority to open the United States back up and was going to do it shortly. On April 13th, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce published a policy paper titled Implementing a National Return to Work Plan. The next day, April 14th, Freedom Works, that billionaire founded and funded group that animated the Tea Party, published an op-ed calling for, quote, economic recovery, an end to the capital gains tax, and a new law to, quote, shield, end quote, businesses from lawsuits. They issued a joint, the, the, the House Freedom Caucus and Freedom Works issued a joint statement on April 14th saying, quote, it's time to reopen the economy. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. There is more, and I will share with that with you after the break. I think it's time to hold not just Donald Trump, but the whole bunch of them accountable. Or at least find out, you know, lay out what happened. And welcome back. Wow. I mean, what a day, right? Uh, Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind? Well, I'm, I'm addressing the issue of Trump's accountability. He's not going to be held accountable because then you have to hold most of the Republicans accountable also as co-conspirators. And you need them to help to hold Trump accountable. So it's just not going to happen. As much as I wish it would, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I suspect you may be right. But I mean, you know, the, there were plenty of Democrats around to defend Hillary Clinton when the Republicans went after her for both her emails and for Benghazi. And they spent three years. It got thousands of television hours. I mean, you can argue yeah, that she wasn't held accountable because she was exonerated in both cases. But I, th- I think her reputation was so badly damaged it contributed to her losing the election, which, of course, was their goal. Why can't Democrats at least do the same for Trump? And for his cronies. Well, they could, but they don't. 
See, that's the thing. You, you mentioned it earlier. Everybody knows about Hillary's missing emails. But because the Democrats can't have a unified message like the Republicans do and blitzkrieg the media day after day with it, how many people know about George Bush Jr.'s missing emails? Not that many. 22 million of them, yes. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Because the Democrats don't get out there and every day, every time they get in front of a camera like the Republicans, spit out the same talking point, all of them, the Republicans get away with this stuff. Yeah. Well, I am I'm I'm kind of leading a one man crusade to try to end that. And we'll see if I have any success, Mark. But and I'm going to lean on and I'm going to continue to lean on, you know, any Democrat that will listen. Mark, thank you for the call. Tim in Aloha, Oregon. Hey, Tim, what's up? Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, Tom. I, I wanted to say many things I've been saying, but the lawyer you were talking to, that's a prime example of what's happening with the Republican hierarchy, whether it's a sort of state, local, federal level. What they're doing is that they're enabling those guys to continue the Trump ideology. If that man, the only reason he wanted to stay in office was, one, to stay out of jail, to keep his head financially above water, and hopefully get the uh, Senate and the Congress on his side and overturn the 22nd Amendment so he can become the American Putin. That's basically it. They give that guy far too much credit for having any intelligence, you know. And because what yeah. they did, what the Republicans are doing now is they're appealing to the, the, the base instincts of the Republican Party, which, you know, 74 million people put that guy in office. And this George Floyd uh, thing, it's almost irrelevant to the point it's, it's going to work in a positive attitude for the Republican hierarchy anyway, because if he's found uh, innocent, they're going to start blaming the Black Lives Matters for in the future for tearing down America like they did before. You see what I mean? And he's found guilty. They're going to blame him again, saying, "See, here you go." It's a no-win proposition for anybody that has any brains, basically. You know. It's, I think you know, Tim, and this was one of the points that was made in um, in in this. Uh, where did I see that? There was a documentary that had something to do with because Louise and I yesterday watched the the, the hour-long documentary of. Uh, 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 Walter Cronkite's last interview with Lyndon Johnson. LBJ died 10, 10 days later. And um, I, I don't recall if it was in that or it was another one, but they pointed out that at that time in the 60s, America was 90, almost 90% white. Now we're only in the, yeah, I think it's now we're 56% white. I just don't think this stuff is going to fly anymore, Tim. I think we're, I think we're coming to the end of it. Um, it may not, and by coming to the end of it, I don't mean necessarily this year. But I really believe this decade. Tim, I got to run, but thank you for the call. I think accountability is on its way. We'll be right back. So just to, just to continue, just to wrap up that, that you know, to, to, to put a bow tie on this thing. And I, I really do need to republish this. On, again, we're, we're now, okay, April 7th was the day that the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, MSNBC all said the same thing. It was literally the big story of the day. I mean, there's just no other way to describe it. And uh, the headline in the New York Times was, and I quote, black Americans face alarming rates of coronavirus infection in some states. And I remember watching TV that day. And the networks were, were bringing out, in particular, their commentators who were African-Americans to say, oh, my, look at this. And, you know, there's, there's something going on. So we get to April 12th. 
Trump says fire Dr. Fauci and I alone can open the economy. On April 13th, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce says it's time, you know, publishes a white paper, a policy paper titled, no pun intended, white paper, a uh, policy paper t- titled Implementing a National Return to Work Plan. The day after that, which would be what, April 13th, uh, April 14th, excuse me, Freedom Works published an op ed on their website calling for an economic recovery program and and a shield law to be passed so the businesses would be immune from lawsuits. You'll recall the Republicans kept trying to get that into every single COVID relief package for the rest of all of last year. Three days after that, we're now up to April 17th. Freedom Works and the House Freedom Caucus issued a joint statement declaring, and I quote, it's time to reopen the economy, end quote. Now keep in mind, these guys had the best science available. They knew what was coming, or at least they had a pretty damn good inkling of it. But at that point in time, because of all that news that had hit a week earlier, they believed it was mostly going to kill black people. Like there was some genetic thing about this or because black people had historically been denied health care in the United States and still are to this day, particularly in the South, in disproportionate numbers. So therefore, you know, uh, healthy white people, you don't have to worry. Eh, you know, if you're old, if you're obese, get, get yourself out of circulation. But otherwise, you're in great shape. So then FreedomWorks published... The next day, they published their hashtag Reopen America Rally Planning Guide. Honest to God, they pushed the. Now keep in mind, FreedomWorks is the group that fed the Tea Party, the protests against Obamacare, where people would show up with these kind of handmade signs, and, but somehow they showed up in $300,000 buses that were painted on the side, you know, with end Obamacare, stop socialism, stuff like that. That was FreedomWorks, an organization that was started by the Koch brothers and their friends back in the day. And in the Reopen America rally planning guide that FreedomWorks rolled out, they encouraged people to show up, quote, in person at state capitals and governor's mansions. And this was their instructions for signage. They said, and I quote again from FreedomWorks website, keep it short, quote, I'm essential should be a, these are the things that you should be holding as signs, right? To, to reopen the economy. I'm essential. Let me work. Let me feed my family. And they added, keep the signs looking homemade. That was April 17th. On April 19th, the first of the hashtag open the country rallies to get widespread national attention happened in New Hampshire. Over the next two weeks, Similar rallies, again, these were being fed by not just FreedomWorks. Now you had a whole spectrum of right-wing groups that were pushing these rallies. And, uh, And, of course, they were being heavily amplified on Facebook. But April 19th was New Hampshire, and within the next two weeks, you had Arizona, Oregon, Delaware, North Carolina, Virginia, Illinois, and a whole bunch of other states. Actually, the states that I just named, I have actual links in my article to each one of the, you know, to news stories about each one of those those early rallies. The one that got the most attention, by the way, during that period of time was the one where they showed up at the uh, Michigan State Capitol, complete with swastikas, Confederate flags, and assault rifles. 
when Rachel Maddow reported that meatpacking plants were a source of mass infection. The conservative uh, chief justice of the Wisconsin Supreme Court said, uh, this isn't so much of a problem. He says, uh, quote, regular folks, end quote, you know, from the community around the meatpacking plants, they weren't the ones that were causing the virus infection. It was the Hispanic and black people who worked there. I'm not literally quite, the, the only literal quote from him is the regular folks part. But you, again, you can read the articles about it. So by this point, by the end of April, within two weeks or three weeks after April 7th, you now had this conservative meme fully and well established. And, you know, about this time, we were figuring out that about a third of the people who died weren't necessarily black. They were in nursing homes. And then you had the useless eaters thing that started spreading on Fox News and right wing media. Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor of Texas, told Fox News, quote, let's get back to living. And those of us who are 70 plus, we'll take care of ourselves. A conservative town commissioner in Antioch, California said that uh, losing many elderly people, quote, would reduce burdens on our defunct social security system and free up housing. We would lose a large portion of the people with immune and other health complications. I know it'd be loved ones as well, but that would once again reduce our impact on medical jobs and housing. Honest to God, he said that. This was the meme. And it was happening all over the country. And then there was this meeting that Jared Kushner was involved in, and uh, Jane Mayer wrote about it for the New York Times. The, the, essential, the essential strategy that they were coming up with was, so far, this virus has only hit blue states, big cities. It's a problem for the Democrats. We're not going to do anything. We just want to reopen America. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Bob Nay's book, Sideswiped, Lessons Learned Courtesy of the Hitmen of Capitol Hill. Bob was the only member of Congress. He was a Republican congressman. In fact, he was the guy who invented the phrase freedom fries. That far right, yes. He's the only member of Congress who spoke Farsi, which is the language they speak in Iran. The Iranian government during the Bush administration, George W. Bush, sent a letter to or delivered a letter to Bob, 
in Farsi, because he spoke Farsi, saying that they were willing to recognize Israel and stop their nuclear program in exchange for recognition by the United States. Bob delivered that to the Bush White House. And within a short time, Bob found himself in a federal prison. And that letter never surfaced, and that rapprochement never happened. It's an amazing story. It's, a, it's too long to read as an excerpt, but it's in the book. It's the end of Bob's political career. Now he's working for Talk Media News. But this is from Chapter 17 of his book. It's titled Political Strongarming. I had a major blowout over the Head Start program with Andy Card, President George W. Bush's chief of staff. The first of the legislation debates centered on Head Start. John Boehner was doing his best to acquire votes to hurt the program. I had supported Head Start for years as an Ohio State Senator and again as a U.S. Congressman. When George Bush became president, however, every issue, including this one, was treated as though, if lost, it would be the end of the world, as if winning were vital to save the presidency. Speaker Hastert became a lapdog for President Bush. Didn't matter whether it was overspending, crushing unions, or ripping the legs out from under Head Start, Hastert acted like the president ran the House instead of the other way around. I found myself under intense pressure to vote against Head Start. I was bombarded by all sides, Tom DeLay, Hastert's staff, and the chairman of the Education Committee, which at the time was John Boehner. I found it amazing that a sitting president would make a do-or-die issue over taking money away from poor children who needed to jump on school, a Head Start. Anyone in the field of education knew that Head Start had a rocky beginning, but it had proven to be statistically and socially a very fine program, and I had always supported it. I had a private hideaway, an office the Speaker gives to leaders and uh, long-term older members of Congress that very few people knew about. Even Brian Walsh, my press secretary, was unaware. On this particular evening, I was in that Capitol hideaway, one floor directly below the chamber. I was sick and tired of being lobbied and bullied on this vote. I had to escape the arm twisting. I used to say it was so bad that you could hear the bones snap on the floor of the house. My private phone in the hideaway was ringing, so I knew that only Ted Van Der Mead of the Speaker's office could have given it out. Chris Kruger, my executive assistant, answered it and signaled me that it was Andy Card, the White House Chief of Staff. Andy said, we need this head start vote. It's critical to the Bush administration's future. I was stunned at this. The entire future of the Bush administration was predicated on beating up on little unfortunate kids by taking away their head start funding. I thought this was idiocy and stupid politics. I said, I have always supported Head Start over my entire career. I don't like this vote, and I just cannot help you. Card blew up at me and responded with, let me make this clear. Boehner said you were a vote for us, and we are holding you to that. I don't know where Boehner got that from, I said. I can rethink this, but I, but I don't like it, and I'm sure I will not change my mind. Andy then said, you are an effing liar. Only spells out the word. And I said, F you, Andy, and your idiotic administration. And I hung up on him. I went to the floor of the house where Boehner confronted me. I told him, Andy is disrespectful, way out in left field on this. He can kiss my ass and, and F him, period. Boehner continued to strong arm me. They were one vote short. It boiled down to the fact that this vote was so hideous, so wrong, that they simply could not get the votes. One of my best friends in Congress, Steve LaTourette, took a bullet for me on this to move the bill along. He told him to back off on me and he would help through the process in the House, but not necessarily if or when the vote came back from the Senate. Second time Andy Card ran afoul of Congress, he had to confront Congressman Steve LaTourette. Steve was one of the finest members of Congress, very brave in his positions, an independent thinker, good at politics, and no wallflower. He's conservative on some issues, but he cares deep down about working people and how they survive in America. 
at this writing, Steve has left Congress frustrated with the lack of acceptance of moderates within the Republican Party. Andy Card decided that he wanted to remove Davis-Bacon, a federal law that requires payment of prevailing wages to workers on public works projects, from the Transportation Appropriation Bill. Don Young was a strong transportation chairman and let La Tourette take the lead on the issue. I dug into Andy's history and found some interesting things. He'd been a Massachusetts state rep. He'd worked for President Bush's father, Bush 41. When Bush 41 lost to Clinton, Andy felt that the transportation bill had done the president no good, and he disliked labor unions, and he disliked unions in general. We all kept up a tough front. Transportation unions lobbyists for the building trades, like Tim James, was very effective and helped the labor Republicans push back. Bush 43, though, kept putting up roadblocks at every step. He simply did not want a transportation bill that might support the unions. John Micah, Transportation Subcommittee Chair during a private Republican caucus meeting, made the best statement of the day. John said, hell, the president doesn't think we need a bill. As he travels in cities by car, they stop all the traffic for his motorcade. He thinks there are no traffic problems. The streets are deserted. We all howled. So anyhow, there's just all these amazing inside stories about how Congress actually works. It's pretty grim. The book Sideswiped by Bob Ney. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. The uh, I believe the trial has been suspended uh, again or has broken or gone into recess or whatever, the Chauvin trial. And the basic claim that the prosecutor had made in that case, the guy trying to put Chauvin in prison, was that this was an assault that led to a death. And it's just that, I mean, you know, there's just simple stuff. Look at the evidence. This is not rocket science. And I'm like, yeah, you think? So anyhow, picking up your phone calls here, Andrea in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Hey, Andrea, what's on your mind? Well, Tom, I had a different take on what I would call uh, Donald J. Trump. I would call him a serial killer. What you want to make you? your case? Well, well I, yeah, I'd like to hear your case. All right. I'm a non-lawyer. Just, you know, just want to throw it out there. He ignored the science. As far as I'm concerned, that's motive. He did nothing about what he knew that was planning to kill people. And then he allowed those people to die. And I consider that murder. I think you can build a strong case. And this is the one that I tried to build in this article. And I, Louise and I were just talking about this during the break. I'm, I'm going to reprint this within the next 40 minutes or so over at Hartman Report, this article that I published several months ago that has all the links to all these, you know, when the right wing just suddenly did this screeching U-turn in the week and a half, two weeks following April 7th. I think you could build a strong case that they made the decision during April, and this is something that CNN laid out. They just didn't draw any conclusions like I am from it, that, you know, that there's culpability or that there's racism behind it or anything like that. But that in April, they made the decision that led to the deaths. And then by June, July, August, September, October, it was obvious that that decision was leading to more deaths. And again, the deaths were disproportionately affecting people of color. But nonetheless, you know, white people were dying, too. I mean, it was just leading to more deaths. And at any point, October, November, December, even the first you know, three weeks of January, while Trump was still president, during that entire period of time, he could have stopped this. And then different outlets that said herd immunity, herd immunity, just get it. It's not that bad. No, you don't need a mask. 
you can still get together. It is malice because he sidelined Dr. Fauci and put a fake Dr. Atlas in the position that Dr. Fauci should have had. He did that intentionally. And then let me just add that the CDC under Trump, who is already under fire, right, they are the ones that delayed by four days the translation from English to Spanish about COVID, and that's why half of my family got infected. And then we do need Medicare for all because the malice caused by Trump and his goonies, his Nazi-loving people, we deserve to have Medicare for all for what we have endured. My husband is 41 years old. He had COVID in October. He's going back to the doctor now for stomach issues that just won't stop. He was never sick before, and I was asymptomatic, and now I've got side effects, and now we're having to ration who can go to the doctor when because of co-payments. Wow. Wow. Susan, I'm so, so this, sorry to hear about your Medicare situation. For all the American people deserve, at the least, at the very least, we deserve Medicare for all for having to live like this. Because on top of the illness, on top of the people that got infected, on top of the people that are asymptomatic, that don't even know, that are still going to have symptoms, possibly half of them asymptomatic are going to have symptoms six months down the road, Right. Long-term effects, I'm having effects, so why isn't somebody else going to have effects? How do you know? You know, this is something brand new. So, And even people who have... And the people that weren't even infected or or sick from COVID, they've got mental illness from being locked up in a house for a year. Yeah, 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 although, you know, that's... And then the QAnon freaks, the the flatters people, they need mental health because they're a bunch of conspiracy whack jobs. I hope you and your husband can get vaccinated. We are hearing that people who are getting COVID symptoms post-COVID, the vaccine tends to make it go to make those go away. That's it seems to be very good news. I'm very sorry to hear about your situation with your family, Susan. And the one caveat I'd like to put on on your rant, if you don't mind, is that we not engage in ad hominem, you know, personal attacks on individuals. I think that we need to honor the humanity of everybody or just assume at least the humanity of everybody. And it's and it's easy not to do that. I, you know, I, I had a meeting over the weekend where I was where I failed to do that. And I'm looking back on it thinking, you know, I, I think I went over the top. But, I, you know, I get how I mean, you are the victim of this crime and your husband is the victim of this crime. Hard. And, it's and hard you, for people, Americans that have been through this the last year to have humanity yeah. and decency for anybody who's been out here saying, ooh, my freedom, I can go out to eat. Ooh, my freedom, I can go to the club. Ooh, my freedom, yeah. I can have a house I'm party. with you. I totally get it. Susan, I got to run, but thank you for the call. And thank you for sharing your story. I know sometimes it's difficult to share personal anecdotes. Let's see here. Elmore in New York City. Hey, Elmore, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV and for holding for so long. What's up? Oh, that's all right. Thank you. I just wanted to make two brief points and get your views on them. Talking about guns, and I think that this country will never solve its gun problem until white people deal with two things from the past. There's severe traumatization um, due to scarcity and lack. That is the history of Europe. And also the use of the word white as it was put into law and implemented in religion and social conditioning. 
In fact, the modern concept of whiteness as used in the United States in particular, but now it's spread to other European countries, was first put into law in 1716, as I recall, or, you know, I just, I just did the research on this. 1681. Say that again? 1681. 1681. Okay, thank you. But between the late 1600s, let's say 1680 and 1750, that was the period of time when all these laws were passed, particularly after Bacon's Rebellion, where black people joined poor white people in rising up against the wealthy white planter class. And at that point, the wealthy white uh, planter class said, holy crap, we've got to get these poor white people on our side, because when you add the poor white people to the poor black people, they're more than we are. And, right. and they've got more, you know. And so that's when they started saying, oh, well, if you're poor and white, you can take land from Indians. If you're poor and white, you can abuse black people. You can, you yeah. can do horrible things to them without any consequence. You know, all yeah. these privileges of whiteness were put into law during that 60-year period, more or less. And, yeah. the, and we're still living with the consequences of that to this very day, Elmore. Yes, and also I think you couple that with um, the millennia of the history of Europe with all of its wars and all of its scarcity. And li- listen, I lived, in, I lived in Sweden, and they still have to um, import most of what they eat. I mean, right. Europe didn't have anything, and everybody's, you know, had this Game of Thrones mentality. You know, yeah. I need that carrot, so I'd beat you over the head and take it. And I think um, we, uh, the, the European uh, diaspora, um, has suffered from unacknowledged trauma of fear of scarcity and lack. I mean, billionaires. Yeah, but 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 let me money. say, Elmore, I don't think you know, and, and I acknowledge that. And in fact, you know, the the great Irish migration into the United States in the 1850s, 1860s was a result of the Irish potato famine, which I think was 1848. And 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 then you had you know uh, similar problems in Italy in the in, a little later in the 1880s or 70s, as I recall, um, which produced another wave of migration. And you know, famine has been frequently a part of what goes on in Europe. But I don't think that you can use that as any sort of an excuse or justification for the way that those white people, when they got here and they got wealthy, treated black people. Well, I think that in terms of their unacknowledged fear, it's like a program running in the background where they, you have to have more and more. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I get I what you're saying, and, I, and, and I would, I would, to the extent that I can agree with it, I would say that cause is not excuse. Um, but Elmore, thank you uh, very much for the for the call, and and that's not certainly not the exclusive cause. I think the exclusive cause is greed. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. 
By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Charles in Miami. Hey, Charles, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Tom? First of all, I'd like to say, as a side note, that Derek Chauvin, he broke the law. I don't know if you remember them saying that he voted twice in Minnesota and also in Florida, just in case if um, he tries to walk on the murder charge. But oh, really? back to Trump. I, I missed that. Yeah, yeah. But So if there's an argument that um, we need to reform voting law because people are cheating and they're voting what twice or whatever, then it's a Republican and his name is Derek Chauvin. We can start with him. Um, as far as Trump is concerned, we did the research on him. And also, you got to remember, there was a sense of a feeling that dealing with these Republicans, we are literally being held at gunpoint. They are pointing the barrel of that AR-15 at us and telling us, if we want to do any gun control or anything else in this country, we're going to have to pry from the dead cold hands. Let's not forget, I just feel like Trump was so callous. It was, you know, negligent. You know, their disregard mm-hmm. for people's lives. This was, this yeah. is what led up to this. this. This whole attitude, forcing people to go back to work and no unemployment. Do you remember that? Do you remember they, they were saying that they won't give people unemployment? You had to go back to work and they had to yep. die from Texas. I think he was. Oh, the, right the one time Trump used the Defense Production Act was to force workers back into meatpacking plants, and they were principally black and Hispanic people. Exactly, and then and then what about um, the? I think he was the lieutenant governor for Texas, telling all people that they might have to give up their lives. This this is uh, this was mass murder on a Republican scale on, I, I just think these people are making me sick. They wanted to dis- um, to, to weaken the, the government, you know, because yeah. look, look on, on what, what day that was in March, Deborah Messonnier, she came out and she was railing again. I mean, she was just telling everybody that we, you know, we would have to shut businesses down, but stuff wasn't going to be as usual, you know, like we were living and Trump jumped on, um, Azar, and told Azar to get Messier out of there, you know? Yep, because she, and she got fired. Because she was yep. telling the truth. And then second of all, I remember him at the CDC with uh, Redfield and the governor right now of um, Georgia. And he was saying, oh, that they saw stuff in China and they were on it, you know? I mean, this was, he had people coming to him, I'm sure, that was warning him, like like Fauci and Deborah Burks or whoever else that had that prestige, they was already involved in this in this type of work, and they were warning him, and he totally ignored it. 
And I just think yep. it was first to weaken the government, to stop people from investigating him in some type of way. So as far as I'm concerned, this is Republican one-on-one because they got, they got rid of a lot of people that's on Medicare, that's on Social Security. That would be any burden to the state. And I just think by him relegating it to the governors was his excuse. Not once, I think, have we have ever had such a catastrophe where the federal government was not in charge. And yeah. this, well, know, actually, we did. Uh, the flu oh. epidemic of 1918, uh, Woodrow Wilson refused to even mention it. Uh, it was never even mm-hmm. mentioned by the White House. But on a state-by-state basis, here in Oregon, masks were mandated, and there was a huge court case where the defendant came in you know, with his head wrapped in a towel with, with uh, just a little slit for his eyes to look through as a statement of objection to it. But the court required him to. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing history. But Charles, i got to move along, but thank you. Your point was very well made. Jim in Woodstock, Illinois. Hey, Jim, what's up? Yeah, Tom, I've been, for years, been teaching a, a course in uh, storytelling, culture, and myth. And I had some years ago a professor from the University of Missouri, Columbia, a professor of cultural geography, did his dissertation infiltrating skinhead groups in the Ozarks. And he said that those same leadership of the skinheads showed up uh, in the Tea Party uh, years later. So you were making that connection between race, the hmm. Tea Party, and the Freedom Caucus. So I just thought that would uh, that reminded me of that anecdote. Is all. And thank yeah. you, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. I think you can track this all the way back to the America First movement in the 1930s that Franklin Roosevelt had to deal with the the you know the neo-fascist movement in the United States. I mean, it's not like there's been a shortage of these things. Uh, thank you for the call, Bob in Long Beach, California. Hey, Bob, what's up? Well, I'm wondering about the international court at The Hague looking at Donald Trump from all the evidence. We pulled out of the agreement so that they have no jurisdiction over us. Uh, George Bush pulled us out when he was accused of war crimes. What I'm wondering is, is are they still up and running and uh, who needs an extradition warrant in order to have them look at something and make a decision? The guy's an international traveler anyway, and even if they did bring a warrant against him on the way to one of his golf courses on the other side of the world the interpol police could pick him up and cart him over there to the heck but still if there's enough evidence against this guy uh, uh, a case should be brought to the international court for crimes against humanity and uh, they ought to be loud about it if there is enough evidence uh, take the evidence there advertise the heck out of it and be loud about it so the whole world is watching rather than just sneaking around little corners here and there so uh I don't, you know really it doesn't make any it, difference okay, okay i get well, it i'm with you and i there needs to be accountability whether it's the international criminal court in the hague or whether it's a some sort of judicial process in the united states or whether it's a legislative process an investigation by congress there needs to be accountability the american people need to know what the hell happened who did what and why bob thank you for the call we'll be back stick around you're listening to tom hartman This is the Tom Hartman Program. In our Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from Shadowlands, a new book by Anthony McCann, Fear and Freedom at the Oregon Standoff. This is from Chapter 1. 
My dear friends, Ammon Bundy began and begins again and again every time somebody hits play from 2016 all the way to the end of the internet. It was the first day of a year that was to scramble an already agitated nation. Along the invisible pathways of the collective mind, the virtual tabernacle of the World Wide Web, Ammon Bundy, cowboy prophet and Facebook hero of liberty, was calling his people to the desert. Soon his friends and what they called the Patriot Movement were all hitting play, activating his familiar face and sitting back in the glow of their screens as Ammon filled their hearts with urgent feeling. It was time, Ammon was saying, for what he called a hard stand. There had been some confusion about what he'd meant in previous communiques. He'd received some pushback, and he'd sat down now on the eve of calamity in front of the camera to try and clear things up. He's at his desk in a cowboy hat. He wouldn't appear in public much again without one until his arrest weeks later on a mountain road in the snow and pines of Oregon's Hard Luck National Forest. He's wearing a checkered western shirt and sporting what was for him a new, neatly trimmed growth of beard, further softening his visage. But even with a beard, Ammon Bundy couldn't help seeming what he was, a Latter-day Saint, clean-cut to the core. The strongest word I or anyone I know has yet heard him use is creep or hell or once with evident discomfort and while making it clear he was quoting someone else, horse S-word. Before being summoned to the desert of Oregon by his god, that fall he'd been enjoying making apple pies for his Idaho neighbors, using apples from his new orchard and delivering the pies himself. But the quiet idyll of that autumn was already long over. This was to be his last video address to his online community before leading the very next day an armed takeover of Oregon's Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. A MacBook Air laptop is open on his desk, its icon doing its quiet, intrepid work to place all our American lives and dreams, even those of right-wing holy insurrection under its sign. Pale winter light comes through the blinds of the windows behind him. In the video, which he titled Dear Friends, Ammon explains how it was God who had guided him to Oregon two months earlier through news of the plight of two Harney County ranchers, a father and son, Dwight and Steve Hammond. Mandatory federal sentencing guidelines were about to send the Hammonds back to prison for arson charges stemming from fires on public lands, charges for which they'd already served time. Others, including his own father, had been urging him to look into the story. Like the Hammonds, Ammon's father, Cliven, was also a rancher. The Bundy family had achieved a national profile for the dramatic culmination of their 20-odd years' struggle with federal authorities over their grazing rights on Mojave Desert lands in southern Nevada. That conflict had come to a head in April of 2014 in a remarkable event, an armed standoff with federal agents that had resulted shockingly in a seeming victory for the Bundy clan. This standoff and the family's ongoing struggle with the aftermath of their life-changing actions had felt like enough to Ammon who had recently moved far from southern Nevada to a new home with his wife and six children in the sagebrush of southern Idaho, on the far northern end of Mormon country, on the outskirts of Boise. He himself was not even a rancher anymore, had not been for years. He ran a trucking fleet maintenance business, still headquartered in Arizona. As it turned out, even that move to Idaho would come to seem, to Ammon, a part of God's larger plan for himself, his friends, Harney County, and America. There had been something a little strange about the move, even at the time. He and his wife Lisa had felt a strong, simultaneous urge to relocate. It had been a feeling that had descended as if from nowhere. 
They couldn't understand it entirely, but they followed it anyway and headed out in the spring of 2015, traveling about the Intermountain West looking at houses. Nothing had been quite right. But then on the very last day of their trip, they'd come to this very last house in a beautiful valley in Emmett, Idaho, and had known instantly that this was their place. It was one of many decisions Ammon would be guided to that year. That guidance, to Ammon's mind, had all been providential. How else to explain that he'd ended up moving to within three hours of remote Harney County, Oregon, where the whole Hammond story, which he had known nothing about at that time, had taken place. And now, here he was, just a few months later, barely settled into his new home, asking his online community to join him in Oregon, to take a momentous stand, a stand so big, he said, that nothing less than the future of American freedom might be at stake. After the move to Idaho, his next big revelation had come late one Monday evening on November 2015. On January 1st, seated in front of his camera, he told the tale of that night to his online followers. Lying in bed in his family's new home, tired after a long day, he'd received a message on his phone, a link to yet another article about the Hammonds. In the past, he'd shrugged off messages about the case. I felt that our family was fighting hard enough, he explained. We didn't need to go fight somebody else's battles. But this time, something was different. An urge quickly took possession of him, a sudden impulse to learn all he could about the Hammond family. He searched the internet and read everything he could find about the case. Unable to sleep, he read on Into the Dawn. The book is Shadowlands by Anthony McCain. By the way, back to the pandemic and the way that Trump screwed it up, there's one other guy in the world that screwed up the pandemic as badly as Trump or at least, you know, uh, who is running a large country. And that's Jair Bolsonaro down in Brazil. This from uh, AP News, the Associated Press. This is by uh, David Biller and Mauricio Saravese. Brazil currently accounts for one quarter of the entire world's daily COVID deaths, more than any other single nation. Now, by the way, we held that distinction up until just a few weeks ago, Brazil is now pushing us into second place. And the article says, and they and that nation is now on the verge of an even greater calamity. The nation's seven-day average of 2,400 deaths stands to reach 3,000 within weeks, six experts told the Associated Press. That's nearly the worst level seen by the U.S., although Brazil has two-thirds of our population. Spikes of daily deaths could soon hit 4,000. On Friday, it was 3,650. And these are just reported, by the way. Keep in mind, Brazil's healthcare system is, shall we say, somewhat third world and dysfunctional, particularly in, in the rural areas. And then they go on to point out that the restrictions or activity they implemented last year were half-hearted and consistently sabotaged by President Jair Bolsonaro, who sought to stave off economic doom. See, I'm telling you, the reason why Trump didn't want, he locked down the country on March, uh, what was it, 15th, thereabouts, and then he lifted that lockdown a month later. Why? And, and started pushing to open the country back up. The, only, the one and only time he used the Defense Production Act was to force you know, mostly black and brown meat workers, slaughterhouse workers and meatpacking plant workers to go back to work. Remember that? He wouldn't invoke the Defense Production Act to produce more tests. He wouldn't invoke the Defense Production Act to make more masks or to make more gowns or to, you know, more PPE. No, no, no. It was to send the slaughterhouse workers and the meatpacking workers back into their working places 
where they were dropping like flies from COVID and, and continued to. But because of the Defense Production Act, the guys who own the slaughterhouses and the meatpacking plants, they now have immunity from prosecution. They can't be sued. Bolsonaro, I, he's not doing exactly the same kind of thing, but he's running the same, he's running the same script that Trump did. These guys were best buds. And now, of course, we have these variants, which are burning through Europe, are burning through Michigan. I have a bunch of friends in Michigan, as well as, of course, you know, my three brothers who all live in Michigan and their families. And Michigan is starting to see an explosion of cases. Why? Because the British variant is there. Wait till the South African variant comes. The British variant is far more contagious and will spread through, you know, things like apartment buildings that wild COVID typically didn't. And then the South African variant infects children and kills young people. And that's here in the United States. It's just not widespread yet. Right now, we're seeing a new wave of the British variant. Well, in Brazil, they not only have those two variants, but they've got a Brazilian variant that's very, very close to the South African variant. And so back to the story from the Associated Press, this is what happens when you've got a president who is more interested in having the economy work because he's you know, funded entirely by big business and billionaires. Brazil, same as the United States. Our Supreme Court set this up with Citizens United I don't know the details of how it came about in Brazil. I think it's just probably decades, centuries of political corruption. But as Biller and Savernese write for the Associated Press, it may be too late with a more contagious variant rampaging across Brazil. For the first time, new daily cases topped 100,000 on March 25th, with many more uncounted. The death toll could be reaching 500,000 by July and exceeding that of the United States by the end of this year. The system, they're talking about the hospitals, the system is already buckling with almost all states' intensive care units at or near capacity. The city's oxygen supply, they're talking about Sao Paulo, uh, they interviewed a doctor there. The city's oxygen supply isn't guaranteed, and stocks of sedatives required for intubation in intensive care units will soon run out. See, when you get intubated, when they shove a tube all the way down into your lungs to make you breathe, you've got to be knocked out first, or you'll just cough that thing out. And if they run out of sedatives, they can't intubate people. If they can't intubate people, they can't keep them from dying. Brazil's state-run science and technology institute, it's called Fiocruz, on Tuesday called for a 14-day lockdown. Yeah, you think? But Jer Bolsonaro's out there, oh, we don't, we, everything's good, don't worry. We don't need nothing. We're good. Right. So what say you? We've got a lot of topics here on the table. How do we hold Trump accountable? How do we get rid of the filibuster? What do we do about guns? You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And like I said, that article that I published back in January with all the links to, that just lays out that April 7th thing, we just republished it at HartmanReport.com. Nicholas in San Cristobal, Mexico, you wanted to set me straight on the potato famine? I, yes, I do. But first, I want to say, 
Mr. Harvey, you are on fire today. This program, with no guests and no other interruptions, you have absolutely nailed everything of importance. Kudos to you. You're always good, but you are incredible today. Good work. Thank you. And thank you to your dear Louise for asking. She heard me on hold there and asked about my all my rescue dogs in Mexico. Please thank her. Oh, that's hey Nicholas. That's that's actually Sean. That was Sean who dropped in and said that to you. Oh, oh, Joyce said it was Louise. Anyway, thank you, whoever, because that means a lot to me. I do a lot. She's our dear Sean, too, our executive producer. There you go. There you go. Listen, apart from all that, and there's nothing I can add to everything you've said today. It's absolutely brilliant program today. What I did want to say is partly because two of your Irish listeners chatters jumped right away when you mentioned the potato famine. And on Mm -hmm. behalf of my ex as well, who's Irish, I do know a lot about that history. And I really would like to see everybody stop using that propagandistic term, which was British generated, of the potato famine. Potato, lack of potatoes did not kill the Irish. They did not starve for lack of potatoes. They lacked because of the gargantuan food shipments out of Ireland by the, the English landowners to England, including grain. Right. Yeah, no, they, they produced enough wheat to feed all the Irish. But they shipped it all to England. Exactly. You're absolutely right. Exactly. They were sending it to England just to feed their cattle. And it was despicable. In Cork alone, which was a very small port at that time, there were more than 50 freighter loads of foodstuffs shipped out of Ireland during the height of the so-called famine. Plenty enough to feed the Irish. It was a despicable history. That's not of enormous importance to most of your listeners, but a couple of the Irish jumped right away out of their socks, and I said, okay, I'll, I'll phone in. Well, and, it's also uh, important, I think, to show the evils of colonialism. I mean, that, that oh, was, absolutely. you know, because at that absolutely. time, Ireland was, you know, functionally a British colony, and the whole point of colonialism, going all the way back to Roman times, the whole point of colonialism is to extract all the resources from the, from the country that has absolutely. been colonized, including the human resources, you know, pull out any human talent, pull out people that you can oh, enslave, yes. pull out any natural and, and resources. Kill, and kill or anybody who got there. in your way while you were doing it, you know. Right, and if, there, and if you leave anybody there, uh-huh. right, and if, and if you leave anybody there, force them to do make your products or make your food. I mean, this is Gandhi's spinning wheel thing, you know, and his salt wages. march. Yep, yes. yep. Yeah, force Horrifying. force the, the the colonized people to basically kind of roll over and, and put up with uh, yes. the great constructive empire. It's still going on. There you go. There you go. Anyway, well that's said, a minor Nicholas. correction, but it's important to some people. So I just thought it, it is. Well, there. I think it's important for history, too. And and I did know that history. I, I just didn't want to go down that rabbit hole in the middle of a good rant. But you're absolutely <laughs> right. And so thank great. you, Nicholas. Thank you very much for the call. And thanks again for helping out in our uh, chat room over on Not YouTube. At all. It's always Not nice at to all. hear from you. My pleasure. Good My talking pleasure. with you, Nicholas. Bye-bye. Thank you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 